0: Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. We promise that this week's three things have nothing to do with Elon Musk. So relax. This week, our three things are one, inflation and credit. This week's hot CPI and PPI prints increase the likelihood of a harder landing in credit. Two, worst-ever sentiment surveys will provide some perspective. And three, earnings in a recessionary and rising rate environment will help you define those dimensions. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. The June inflation releases out this week increased the likelihood of an economic hard landing in the U.S., even though evidence is building that inflation may be peaking. So what does this mean for credit? From a high level, the impact of inflation on credit can be a mixed bag. Borrowers with fixed-rate debt and assets that appreciate see their financial risk profile improve. But asset appreciation is also a function of demand, which comes from economic growth. There is a point where the effects of inflation dampen economic growth. That's why the Fed and its reaction function to inflation, i.e. monetary tightening, is so important to risk assets in general and credit in particular. Now, make no mistake about it. Inflation running at 9% is a black eye for the Fed, which is now singularly focused on bringing inflation down. The predicament, of course, is twofold. One, the Fed can only get at part of the problem, overheated demand, by tightening financial conditions. It cannot directly address the other part of the problem, supply constraints, which is driving outsized price increases in energy, Food, and shelter. And two, its toolkit is full of only blunt instruments. The supply side issue could be addressed through additional stimulus, but we believe there is very little political will for that over the near term as long as economic growth is still positive. So the supply side will have to solve on its own over time. And that implies that the Fed and other central banks will almost by definition over tighten. Think through the sequencing. To break the back of inflation quickly, the Fed is likely to overshock demand in the hope of restoring its credibility as an inflation fighter. Able to impact only the demand side of the equation, but needing to bring inflation materially lower, the tendency will be to tighten extra aggressively to make up for the lack of progress on the supply constraint side. Doing so is a human impulse, as in, there, we may be a bit late, but we did our part the problem is the cost of overshocking, and here is where we come back to credit. Now, the first thing to keep in mind is the current interest rate context. It's historically low, with the 10 year Treasury yield, 2.99%, nearly a point lower than the average, 3.94%, over the past 30 years. So, that added debt service burden is manageable by the vast majority of issuers. More on that in a bit. Our attention is on the earnings side of things. Overshocking means recession probability goes up. That means on the corporate side, poorly positioned firms become increasingly vulnerable as inferior product, flawed execution, or an over-levered balance sheet, or some combination of all three, are exposed. To consumers, economic slowdown means unemployment has to rise, although policymakers are loath to publicize that part of tightening. Meanwhile, inflation has reduced the consumer's margin of safety especially among lower-income cohorts. While these consumers benefited from stimulus, any excess savings they may have had has likely eroded, which is likely contributing to higher losses and delinquencies in our consumer loan indices. And on the commercial side, we see risk rising in the KBRA Altman one-year forward default rate forecast for June 30, which rose to 3.76% from 2.65% at March 31st. We're back to normal. What's ahead will be significantly influenced by the Fed. All right, on to our second thing perspective on worst ever sentiment surveys. Investors are being hit with a tsunami of market readings that clearly are weighing on sentiment. In addition to historically poor financial and economic data points, as in the worst inflation in 40 years, sentiment survey results are coming in at extreme levels. Take consumer sentiment, where the outlook is the worst ever. Same for small business. We remind investors, where you end up depends on where you start. Where we started was supercharged growth, fueled by unprecedented stimulus in the form of helicopter money and extraordinary monetary accommodation. U.S. economic and growth in 2021 was more than three times what the Fed believes is normal while interest rates were held at historically low levels. So what did that do? Among other things, it inflated assets dramatically, whether it was real estate or stocks or corporate bonds. It drove corporate earnings 47% higher in 2021 than the 2019 level. It drove household net worth 28% higher. It drove unemployment back to 50-year lows. It drove default rates, both consumer and commercial, to historically low levels. As we've said many times in the past, none of this is normal. Yet normal is where we're headed. Back to a stimulus-free world. Back to materially higher-than-zero interest rates. Back to increased geopolitical uncertainty. Back to 2% long-term growth, if we're lucky. We realize that none of this is a revelation, but it is a reminder that the movement, the Delta, in all of those surveys is going to be sharply negative simply because of where we are starting. So if the National Federation of Independent Business asks its members if they expect better business conditions over the next six months, and a record net negative 61% comes back, the worst reading in the survey's 48 years, It should not come as a surprise given that we are in the most dramatic correction and at the beginning of one of the most dramatic Fed tightening cycles in our lifetime. Past two stimulus-driven years were great. Back to normal will not be great. Take the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey. Lots of headlines and angst around the response that some 79% of respondents in June expected bad times in the year ahead for business conditions. Well, that doesn't sound very good. But here's the actual question. And I quote Now, turning to business conditions in the country as a whole, do you think that during the next 12 months we'll have good times financially or bad times or what? Unquote. First of all, or what is a bizarrely casual, might I say collegiate, throwaway line. So what the surveyors are asking is really binary, either good or bad. And if it's not good, it must be bad. In the face of inflation-reducing quality of life and a strong consensus in other surveys that people believe the country is on the wrong track, which we attribute in large part to political dysfunction, bad seems like the more likely choice. The point of this is not to sugarcoat decidedly negative sentiment. It's merely to put into proper perspective extraordinary data points. Keeping this in mind, you can now see why we still have strongly positive job creation, at least in the Bureau of Labor Statistics Establishment Survey. It's why the ISM surveys, both manufacturing and services, remain solidly in expansion territory. It's why corporate earnings growth continues to surprise to the upside, although maybe this is the quarter that comes up short. And it's why consumer spending has continued to hold up. Our view all along is that the direction of travel in this correction will be unnerving. And that's why we said the probability of recession is greater than the bull's view that this adjustment would be fairly seamless. Now it's really up to the Fed. Tightening aggressively into a slowing economy doesn't strike us as sound policy. Let's hope their decisions are truly data dependent and not peer dependent. Only then do we have a chance at a better than hard landing. All right, on to our third thing moving pieces. We heard one investor this past week being interviewed about her view of risk, and she came back a bit flustered about how difficult forming an updated view is on account that, quote, everything is moving, unquote. We could not agree more. Top line, expenses, bottom line, moving. Inflation, the Fed, interest rates, moving. Russia, China, Iran, moving. Commodities, the dollar, moving. We've always thought the mark of a good analyst is knowing how and when to call the turn. Well, that too is moving, because it's turning. So on two of those moving pieces, we've got some updated data. The first is earnings in a recession, since that is quickly becoming consensus. The good folks over at BlackRock Investment Institute tracked the decline in S&P 500 earnings through recessions going back to 1957. The average decline in those recessions is 13%. Well, it doesn't sound all that bad. The worst performance was the recession triggered by the global financial crisis, where earnings fell by 40%. As we have talked about often in the past, the GFC was particularly destructive as the shock catalyzing the downturn was centered in the financial system, which makes the whole thing worse because the downturn is typically accompanied, and was at that time, by a severe credit crunch. Now, this downturn, should it be officially designated as a recession, could be worse than the average, not because the financial system is part of the problem, just the opposite, the financial system is sound today, but because earnings have been boosted by extraordinary stimulus-fueled growth. Remember, earnings at the S&P 1500, that's large, mid, and small caps, for 2021 was 47% above what it earned in 2019. This year, earnings are expected to grow an additional 18% over 2021 levels, and 2023 is forecast to grow 9% over 2022. All of this into, we think, a recession. Those numbers strike us as much too high. The second bit of data we've cobbled together is on rising interest expense. Bloomberg Intelligence has estimated that interest costs are due to rise by at least $32 billion cumulatively by year-end 2024. To get to that number, Bloomberg assumes maturing debt is refinanced with new debt of a similar tenor issued at rates consistent with Bloomberg's BVAL yield curves. In other words, at today's levels. So how much is $32 billion? Well, if you add up interest expense of issuers that have raised money in the U.S. investment grade, 144A, high-yield, and estimated leverage loan markets, that's about $500 billion in interest expense. So adding another $16 billion in each of the next two years, interest rate expense goes up 3% a year. That's more than manageable. Now, the risk to interest coverage clearly is going to come from the earnings side of your EBITDA to interest calculation. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, inflation and credit. This week's hot CPI and PPI prints increase the likelihood of a harder landing in credit. Two, worst ever surveys. They're not as bad as they seem. And three, earnings in a recessionary and rising rate environment. While earnings could be down 20% in this downturn, interest expense due to the rate rise we think will be manageable. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research and ratings reports. See you next week.